When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him for the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verily, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread amongst the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm Ms. Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Have you guys ever felt embarrassed? Um, I was deciding which way to go. I normally go funny, but I'm going a different route this time. Um, Remember, the year was 2002, the year 2002, and um, where were you at? <laughs> you were a sophomore. I, I was, I found myself uh, running pretty far and pretty fast from God at this point in my life, and uh, I'd grown up in church as a pastor's kid, and just had all this angst and stuff about church and God and unanswered questions and, and frustrations. And um, I'll never forget, it kind of culminated on one Sunday afternoon. The Lucille Ball Life Story movie was on Lifetime on TV. And uh, Nancy and I were at home doing laundry and hanging it on the clotheslines strung in our apartment. And uh, <laughs> I remember... Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't at church this day. I, I was hardly going to church at all, and I was pretty, pretty miserable, even though like things with Nancy and I were going well and all that. It was just like I was miserable because I knew I'd been disconnected from God. Has anybody ever felt that way before? So I poured myself a tall boy of cheap Albertson's vodka. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um... 
with a twist. <laughs> and I passed out on the couch and uh, almost didn't wake up. And after the alcohol poisoning wore off, and uh, I realized that I was running from something. I didn't know what. The next Sunday, I found myself back at my father's church. And the point of this story is I remember walking in, and I remember, because this is an older church, right? started in 1945, generations, and I sat down where I always sat on the front row, and I remember just feeling the laser beam focus of an entire audience of like 600 people cutting into the back of my head. And I just knew they were all whispering, what's he doing here? Where's he been? That moment, that shame I felt, I relate to what Peter's feeling here. Because Peter... Like, think about this guy. This guy, he, if you think about his story, when we meet him here, we meet a man who's carrying a load of shame. This guy, on the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, just a few hours before, Peter had said to him in Matthew 26, I'll follow you, even if all the rest of these guys fall away. Look, Jesus, I know these 12 they're probably going to chicken out, but not this guy. I got you. I will follow you even until death. I will follow you if they throw you in prison. I love you more than these, right? That's what Peter says, and um, he just wants so badly to prove himself to God, prove himself to others, prove himself to himself. You guys relate to that? I think it would be a good time to have like a little open living room dialogue for a second, just to bring us all into that reality. What are some of the ways, what might be some of the ways in which we seek for approval or we try to prove ourselves to others? What might be some of the ways that you've seen, you've seen other people try to prove themselves to others? Maybe not stuff you've struggled with personally, but... Let's throw some out there. Talking about yourself? Yeah, that's it. Oh, uh, you never guessed what I did the other day. <laughs> right? Or just humble bragging on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, that's it. So you save the vacation photos and just post them all throughout the year. So people are like, man, what kind of life are they living? <laughs> Guilty. All right. What else? What are some other ways that we try to prove ourselves to others? Work. work? Yeah. Talk about that. In what ways? In what ways do we try to prove ourselves through work? Being successful. Being successful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Getting that raise. Working those extra hours. You ever talk to people in San Diego who worked a 40-hour work week and, like, that's what they say? <laughs> Everybody works a 50 to 1,000-hour work week. Yeah, just... See, all week long, I had 24-hour days. I haven't slept in three months, you know. So, yeah. Parenting. Parenting, yeah. And how's that go when your kids are acting? Well, you guys wouldn't know this, but when your kids are acting the fool, <laughs> it reflects on you, right? Oh, your kids are so beautiful. They're so perfect, yeah. I follow you on Instagram. <laughs> Well, let me ask this. What might be some ways that we try to prove ourselves to God? 
Looking down on others. Yeah. A little judgy stare, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Trying to prove ourselves worthy of love. Trying to prove ourselves worthy of his love. Man, that's a big one. Oof. Took the deep dive. I like it. I'm sorry? Yeah. Praying. How we pray, when we pray, how often we pray. Doing it to get his love, earn his love. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just like, yeah. I ordinarily wouldn't do this. I just want you to know. <laughs> yeah. How about, oh, go for it. Oh, man, doing it on our own strength. I'm so guilty of that. I will work my butt off all day long, and at the end I'll have a counseling session or something. I'm like, all right, Holy Spirit, now I need you. And he's like, I've been there all along. <laughs> now you need Yeah. What might be some ways we try to prove ourselves to ourselves? It's a tougher one. It's getting incrementally tougher. I only have 45 more questions, don't worry. Meeting our own standards. Say that one more time. Meeting our own standards. Setting our own standards and meeting our own standards. Yeah. What, is it, what else? Oh, same. <laughs> it's like they're connected. <laughs> they played in the band together. They're in sync. Uh-huh. Good. Yeah. Oh, in sync. It was a double entendre. I didn't even... I'm quick, but I'm not that quick. That was, that was good. Yeah. So puffing ourselves up, you know, right? Setting up our own standard and meeting it. Or maybe setting down our own standard so we can meet it. Yeah. So I surpass my standards all the time. I'm <laughs> the greatest human being that has ever lived. How about, how about how we view others to boost our own, our own view of ourselves? Like what they say of you. Mm. Mm. Social appraisal, social reflection, how people see me, how they view me. Yeah. Yeah. Or how about, do, do you ever do that thing where you, like, look at somebody else, and you wouldn't judge them, like, really? Like, at least you wouldn't say you were, but you're like, I would never do that. Right? Don't we all have some of those areas? How could they do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, that's the sermon. See you get, No. <laughs> <laughs> So Peter is this guy who we find, we meet him under this load of guilt and shame, constantly in a need to prove himself. And he's proven himself to Jesus. He's trying to, but he doesn't keep his promise, sadly, does he? We find him on this night, standing in a courtyard or around a fire. Jesus is in a trial in the adjacent space. And they come to him and they say, hey, man, aren't you one of his followers? And what's he say? No, I I don't even know him. Uh, no, I saw you with him. I don't know him. A few minutes later. No, man, for sure, you are definitely one of his followers. And he curses and swears and says, I don't know the man. And right then, the rooster crows. And he remembers what his Lord said, that you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly, it says. Peter screwed up. And he felt a lot of guilt, but that's not what's bothering him now, because since that night, he's seen Jesus. 
He was forgiven by Jesus on the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He's forgiven on the cross. No, it's something deeper. And I, I think it's because guilt is about what we do. Shame is about who we are. And a lot of us who've grown up in church or are Christians, we've learned to apply the gospel to our sin and our guilt. But there are multiple people in churches everywhere walking around still carrying a load of shame because they don't know how to let it go. Shame is like a cancer that attaches itself to the soul of our identity and it eats away, slowly taking over. I was at um, Avengers the other night and uh, don't worry, I'm not going to use an Avengers illustration and spoil it for you guys. Just the preview was uh, Venom. Has anybody seen the preview for Venom yet? Tom Hardy movie. This black alien goo somehow gets on him and in him and starts to like take over and, and take over his identity. And all of a sudden he's a we instead of a me. And it's, it's just watch it for the visual. Because that visual of what he's experiencing in that trailer is essentially what's happening to all of us with shame in the invisible recesses of our souls, whether we're aware of it or not. Soon we're defined by what's been done by us or been done to us. Um, last year during uh, sabbatical, one of the books I picked up and was reading was uh, Les Mis, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Uh, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, whether it's the play you've seen or the movie or, or you read the book. But in the play, Javert, at the beginning, you know, look down, look down, you'll always be a slave. Anybody? Yeah. I got, I got one no, one very quick no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just keep me humble. That's good. Um, and Javert says, now bring me prisoner 24601. Your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means? And Valjean says, yes, it means I'm free. No. <laughs> That's what he says. No, it means you get your yellow ticket of leave. This badge of shame, you'll show it everywhere. It warns you are a dangerous thief. And then Valjean goes around the French countryside trying to start over. He's got to show this yellow badge, this yellow ticket everywhere he goes with his prisoner number, 24601, dangerous thief written on it. And they'll let him work in the town, and then they won't pay him, and they'll beat him up, and they'll kick him out. And He's sleeping outside, and he's just outcast of society. And everyone mistreats him because they see him through that yellow ticket, and it reinforces this yellow ticket identity. He's become the yellow ticket. He begins believing it. And that's like a lot of us. We have this huge struggle. We begin to believe that we are what we've done, and we carry it around with us like that yellow ticket, and it follows us everywhere. Shame hides in the shadows of our souls. How can we get rid of shame? How can we kick that yellow ticket to the curb. Today I want to encourage you with this passage because I think Jesus shows us that we don't have to hide our shame, we don't have to cover it up, we don't have to ignore it and act like it's not there. But Jesus wants to lovingly lead you back to that place of pain and set your identity free and place you on the path of purpose. And the first thing we see is that Jesus walks with Peter back to the source of his pain. Think about the setting. And Kenny mentioned this briefly last week. Thanks for setting me up. He allied, I'm open. Okay? He said, 
It's a fireside where Jesus calls the disciples in at the beginning of this chapter. It's a, fire, a coal fire just like what was in the, the courtyard the night Peter betrayed him. And then Jesus pulls him to the side and he asks him, remember Peter had been like, I love you more than these. I love you more than these. Like, do you love me more than these? And how many times does he ask him? How many times did Peter deny him? Yeah, it's almost like he's just prepping him. And you're like, dang, Jesus, you're really like sticking the knife in and twisting it right now. But here's the deal. It's, it, it's the, knife, the knife of a surgeon, not the knife of a thief. Jesus isn't bringing him back to this point and making him aware of the surroundings and using all these things to, to mess with him and heap the shame and guilt on him. He's doing it to heal him. It's the surgery that has to happen in order to cut the cancer out. Think about how we deal with shame, how we tend to hide our past pain or deal with our past pain. What are some of the ways? Do we, we tend to block it out, ignore it, shove it down deep, or just like excuse it, act like it's not there anymore? There's a couple of ways I think we deal with it that are really clear. One is we try to deal with it with religion. And I'm not talking about the gospel. I'm talking about the good works-based religion. I'm talking about the Sunday best religion, the wearing masks religion, where you've got it all together, or the, the like serving, loving, giving, doing all these things on one side because you know how, how broken you are and you're trying to somehow make up for it. Paul challenges this in Romans 2. He says this. And this is the message version. Forgive me, those of you who are anti-message. But I just, I just love this, the way he says it here. While you're guiding others, who's going to guide you? While you're preaching, don't steal. Or are you going to rob people blind? Who would suspect you? Same with adultery. The same with idolatry. You can get by with almost anything if you front it with eloquent talk about God and his law. Religion doesn't work because... It covers up the problem. It doesn't deal with the cancer at the source. Religion is like putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone. Religion doesn't work. But, so the other thing we try is relativism. Right? Relativism, it, basically, we, we try to throw it out. I've been reading this book. It's, it's been uh, spottily really good and challenging, but there's been some interesting parts, too. Um, it's called Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety by uh, a therapist named Peter Bregan. Um, and he says this. Yeah, I'm going to go for it with a quote. It's long, but let's go for it. In China, uh, childhood, fear of external consequences is an inadequate method of control. So parents basically keep on. They use guilt, shame, and anxiety or perhaps the best necessary. Perhaps necessary is internal controls for children before they can develop empathy and sound ethics. In adulthood, those emotions are clearly and grossly interfere with rational judgment, stifle creativity, inhibit empathy and love, and ultimately make people feel more helpless. So immaturity, guilt, shame, and anxiety need to be identified, rejected, and replaced with more positive guidelines. So he agrees that shame is a problem, right? And he says evolution and society basically created morality to help us flourish and control people, and the only way you can get kids to obey as parents is guilt, shame, and fear. So you do that as kids, and then when you grow up, you don't really need this stuff anymore. You don't need it. And so his answer, if you read later on in the book, is basically to ditch the hand-me-down morality. And ditch the guilt and the shame and the fear and construct your own ethics that you like. Sounds like what we were talking about a moment ago. Construct the ethics you like so you can adhere to them, so you can measure up. But the problem with that is 
not to be too, like, college level right now, but it's like, if, if we all are relativistically just, like, setting morals however we want, pretty soon it's going to look like the book of Judges we just preached through, right? Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Like, maybe not in one generation, but multiple generations. How do you have a cohesive society where everybody just determines what's right and wrong for themselves? Secondly, um, the other thing is, is basically, once you set up a new law for yourself, instead of the hand-me-down morality you've received from your religious background and your parents, are you going to be able to keep it perfectly? Even that law, don't we, like, whenever we set rules for ourselves up, don't we still end up messing those up? And then aren't we right back to the shame, guilt, and fear? It's the same thing. And so it, religion tries to cover up our shame. Relativism just tries to throw out the cause of our shame. But Jesus doesn't do either. Jesus lovingly leads us back to the place of our pain, the source of our shame. Jesus doesn't shy away. He doesn't excuse or ignore Peter's shame. And at the same time, he doesn't heap on the guilt and shame, but Jesus shows that he knows Peter and loves Peter right where he is. In fact, that's the first thing he asks. He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Think about that question. The context of all this is, is the love of Christ. John is known as the beloved gospel. Love is talked about in John more than any other gospel, by far. You know, God loves Jesus. Jesus loves his disciples. If you love me, you'll love the Father. You'll love one another. You'll keep my commandments. Love, 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 right? It's love. It's a love chapter. John, I, he's the beloved disciple. Of course it is. So um, Jesus overemphasizes his love for them and the importance of his love. In fact, I love this scripture in John 13. Right before Jesus is betrayed, it says, Jesus loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus loves Peter. That's the point. It's clear. Peter knows it. The question is, does Peter love Jesus? And so he asks him, do you love me? Think about that question for a second. Think about Peter's need to prove himself. Remember like, Remember that time in Matthew where Jesus is like, who do men say that I am? And people are giving all these answers, and Peter's like, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Your name's going to be Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven. It's just like this moment of like affirmation. I bet Peter was going nuts inside and trying to keep it cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then two verses later, Jesus starts talking about the fact that he has to go suffer and die. And Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him and says, says, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you are a stumbling block for me. So he went from Peter, the rock, to Satan, the stumbling block, within two <laughs> verses. Constantly searching for approval, looking to try to prove himself. At the Last Supper, Jesus is going around, form of a servant, washing people's feet. And, and um, Peter, he gets to Peter, and Peter says, Ah, oh, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Right? I'm proving myself to you. You're my Lord. You're not my servant. No way. And Jesus says, uh, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. He changes his mind real quick, doesn't he? Oh, Lord, not, not my feet, but my hands and my head also. Just... And then in this, this passage here that 
Well, in, in 13, later on in the same thing, the same, the same part, he says, I will follow you even to death. I'll lay down my life for you. And a few hours later, he's denying him. Like he, around the dinner table, wanted the approval, wanted to prove himself to Jesus. But now around the campfire, he wants to prove himself to all the people who are in his immediate vicinity. No, I don't know him. Constantly searching for approval. And now Jesus is about to restore Peter. He's about to place him back on this, this pathway of his purpose. He's about to call him back into his ministry. But as long as Peter lives with this longing for approval, as long as Peter's held hostage deep within his soul by his shame, he'll never be free to be the person God wants him to be. His ministry will get twisted into all these self-seeking motivations. He'll find himself doing all these things for God to get love instead of resting in the love he already has. He'll find himself busy proving himself to God and to others and to himself over and over and over instead of trusting that he has all the approval his heart could crave. He'll find himself busy achieving to make up somehow for all his sin and brokenness instead of receiving the righteousness that he has in Christ. So Jesus is walking Peter back into his past so that he can give him a future. You tracking? Do you love me? Think about that. How would you answer right now if Jesus asked you that? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? More than whatever, fill in the blank? Henry Nouwen says this, we have to hear that question as being central to our faith in ministry because it's the question that can allow us to be at the same time irrelevant and truly self-confident. What's Peter or Henry Nouwen saying? He's saying many of us are a lot more like Peter than we would like to think. A lot of us beneath all the bravado and the Facebook posts, right? I mean, a lot of us are severely lacking self-confidence. A lot of us are longing for relevance and approval. In fact, I would dare to, to challenge you to really think about why it is you do most of the stuff you do and whether or not there are seeds of proving yourself that are planted in almost all of it. Many of us live large chunks of our life trying to prove ourselves. Some of our lives are just exhausting. And we're not even sure why we work at the place we do or we're in the relationship we are or why fill in the blank. But we're exhausted. We're in this culture of dignity instead of a culture of honor. So instead of honoring people just for being a human being and for having whatever role they have in society, we say it's dignity. Have the best role. Get paid the most. Do the best job. Work the longest hours. Prove yourself. You are what you do. So for many of us, beneath all the accomplishments, there's this deep current of despair that leads to loneliness and brokenness and isolation and lack of true friendship and lack of true intimacy with anybody. We look back in our rearview mirror and we've got strings of broken relationships and we feel empty and depressed and this deep sense of uselessness. And all this fills the hearts of millions in our success-oriented society. Why? We've believed lies, just like in the garden. We've believed lies. One lie, that you are what you do. You're, you're somehow the sum total of your actions or what's been done to you. Another lie, you're being 
flows from your doing. Your identity flows from your actions. It's another way of saying it. And Henry Nouwen says, you have to hear that question. You have to hear the question of the voice of love saying, do you love me? Why? Because as the voice of love gets drowned, drowned out by all the other voices in this world, we believe lies about who we are. We believe we're not loved. We believe we're not valued. We believe we're not useless. And what you need more than anything else today is to hear God's love for you in Christ. And to hear him ask you, do you love me? Do you know how loved you are today? I want to apply this for a second just to you. I want you to ask yourself honestly. Like take the emotional walls down for a second and let the Holy Spirit probe your heart. Ask yourself. The gospel says God knows you as you are and loves you as you are. God created you in love. That he's recreating you and redeeming you in love. And I know we talk about total depravity. I know we talk about the original sin. And these are beautiful, precious doctrines that we hold on to and we cling to. But I just want to remind you that the story doesn't start with the fall. And before the fall, you were created in love. As sons and daughters of God. And that, yeah, your sin was broken and marred and bloody and... Therefore, the cross had to be broken and dark and marred and bloody. But he was willing to send his son. Why? For God so what? Love. He loved you. He loved you before. He's loving you through it. He'll love you after it for all eternity. Do you know? Do you believe? Can you accept that you are known right now as you are fully down to your core? And that the only one who matters loves you. He's not holding back anything. He loves you. You have to hear that today or else you'll make your life one big effort to make up for it. Religion says you need to cover up your shame, make up for it. Relativism says throw out your shame, you don't need it. And Jesus says, no, let's walk back to that place of shame. Don't be afraid. I love you. I'm here with you in it. My love's not going anywhere. Let's talk about this. I want to heal you. Do you love me? When we realize how loved we are, that's when we're free to love him in return. And only then, only then are we free to engage in the calling that God has on our lives. He says to Peter, feed my sheep. I love this. I love that Jesus meets Peter right where he's at. It's almost as if Jesus knew we were having an attachment theory class this morning. (laughs) He meets Jesus right where he's at in his torment, and he finds him. He calls out to him from the boat. He sets him by a warm fire, and he feeds him, and he serves him, and he asks him questions, and he loves him. And it reminds me, that's the, that's the context of his calling, of him restoring Peter and calling him back and giving him purpose. It reminds me of this scene from Les Mis, um, my favorite scene. I love the scene in the bishop's house, because the bishop meets Valjean right where he's at, out shivering in the cold in his torment. And he finds him sleeping outside, calls him into a warm house, feeds him, serves him, calls him brother and loves him. And how does Valjean respond to all that love? Do you guys remember? Still, he, yeah, takes the silver cups and once everybody's asleep and the house is quiet, he runs off into the night. And the next morning, the police officers come dragging him back in. Like, we found this thief 
<laughs> he had the yellow card, right? We found this thief, 24601, and uh, he says he gave him these silver cups. And the bishop says, I did. But my friend, you left so early, uh, you forgot to take these as well. And if you read the book, you know that these are the last two great possessions this bishop hasn't given away. He gives him his silver candlesticks. And the police kind of like walk away shaking their head, SMH. Shaking my I'm hip. And, and then what's, what's, the, what's the bishop say to Valjean? He says, but remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. See, Javert, the, the, the cop, the guy who represents the law, gave him a yellow ticket. Called him 24601. Called him thief. But this bishop gives him precious silver. Calls him brother. Calls him friend. And Valjean leaves changed. And a, a new story must begin, right? It's, <laughs> why? Because he's experienced grace. And so now he goes out and lives this amazingly gracious life. He's experienced acceptance. And now he goes and accepts those who feel rejected. He's experienced love, so now he goes out and he loves those who are the outcasts of society, the least of these. He becomes a man of mercy and justice, protects the poor, serves the underserved. Why? Because he began to see himself in the precious silver instead of the crumpled yellow ticket. And some of you need to start seeing yourself in the precious silver you've been given of grace and not the crumpled yellow ticket of false identity that's been spoken over you. That you're still carrying around. Mm. You need to hear the voice of love louder than all the other voices. Not the names you've been called, not the identities you've brought into yourself, not the lies the enemy would love for you to believe so he could just keep you on the sideline fishing. I um, want to ask you who's the loudest voice in your life? You set aside time to, to listen to that voice. Away from all the other voices. Time to rest in it. I remember um, that moment, standing in my dad's church, feeling the laser beam and all the eyes on me. Feeling the shame. And it probably was like two people that even looked at me. But that was what was going on here, right? Because I'm carrying all the shame. And I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin. I just wanted to leave. I'll never forget, I, my dad, my six foot seven, 380 pound dad, must have seen me squirming or something. Because he got up and walked across, in the middle of service, in front of everybody, across. I'll just cry. <laughs> I'll hold it back. No, let's get ugly. Okay. Let's deal with the shame right here. And uh, wrapped his arms around me, and I'll never forget what he said, and I have a horrible memory. I'll never forget. He said, I love you, son. 
Yeah. It doesn't matter where you've been. It matters that you're here now. And here I stand on a Sunday morning crying in front of a group of half strangers. Unashamed, kind of. (laughs) Because I heard the voice of love through my dad. The voice of love sets you free to follow God's purpose in your life. The bishop says to Valjean, see in this some higher plan. Use this to start a new life. Live differently. A new story. Jesus tells Peter, you love me? Feed my sheep. He doesn't take him back to his past and kick him. You love me? Well, you didn't, you know. (laughs) You love me? Let's look at the future. Feed my sheep. A voice of love sets you free to follow God's purpose in your life. What time is it? Oh, boy. I had two more points. I'm not going to get there. A couple of things that we see. Uh, First of all, briefly, I'll I'll just, for the sake of time, I won't quote all the scriptures. I'll just dive into it. He tells Peter, hey, um, when you're old, you're going to be led with outstretched hands and talking about his death. And I think for a lot of us, that's kind of a morbid thing. You're like, Jesus, why are you talking about Peter's death? But you got to understand, this was actually probably really good news for Peter, because if you look at the text, this is exactly what Peter had said to Jesus, right? And the Jesus who, by the way, when he called people said, follow me, take up your cross and follow me, right? That was his kind of altar call moment for people. It wasn't like, hey, come to your best life now. God wants to give you a thousand houses. It was like, no, God wants to give you a cross. Follow me, right? And so that's, that's what's happening. And then Peter says, Lord, I'll follow you at the Last Supper. I'll follow you even to death. And Peter says, will you follow me to death? You're going to deny me three times. And now in this moment, he says, by the way, Peter, when you're older, a long time from now, you'll still be following me. And they'll lead you. They'll lead you to the end. And it says that's the death that he was going to die for the glory of God. It's not a threat to Peter. It's a promise. It's a hope to the guy who feels like I'm constantly failing and falling away. And Jesus says, no, you're going to die in the faith. I have purpose in your life, and I will see it through. Some of you need to know that today the purpose God has for you, he's the one that's going to see it through. It's not by your strength. It's by his. Okay, that's that point real quick. Last point. I love, I love that he wraps up. And they're walking, and Jesus tells him that. And he says, follow me. And then, uh, and then he turns around and sees John, the beloved disciple, following. He goes, hey, but what about him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? It's like Peter. Like, you're in the middle of the conversation where it's like other people don't matter, nothing matters, and you're still trying to prove yourself. You're still trying to compare yourself. You're still, you haven't even learned the lesson, dude. And guess what? This really encourages me because God still uses him in his mess. 
A few days later on the day of Pentecost, he's the guy who stands up filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims the gospel at the birth of the church. He's the guy who God uses at the point of his pain. Remember, he always felt on the outside. He always felt rejected. He never felt like he was brought in. And then God uses him to bring this radical gospel of inclusion. And on the day of Pentecost, they go from 120 people that are locals to 3,000 people from all over the world speaking all different kinds of language. God brings him in. And then in chapter 8, God gives him a vision of a blanket being lowered down from heaven with unclean animals in it and says, guess what? I'm ready to bring the Gentiles in too. Peter's like, no. And he has to show him the vision. Guess how many times? <laughs> Three times. And there's a knock on the door and there's three guys at the door and they're from Cornelius' house and Peter goes and the Holy Spirit falls and they get baptized and Gentiles are brought into the church. Peter's got this magical, amazing ministry of, of bringing outsiders in because he was that guy. And he was loved and he was brought in. And guess what? It's not the last time he denied Jesus either. It's not the last time he denied his calling. You fast forward to Galatians, what do you see? I'll read this one real quick, if you can find it, Chris, sorry, I'm skipping all over the place. Um, Galatians 2, when Peter was come to Antioch, Paul, Paul is talking, by the way, the great apostle, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for, before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them, which were not of the circumcision. So, and then Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, right? So, long story short, epic MMA moment between Paul and Peter, and it's over the fact that Peter has had this amazing revelation, that blanket being lowered from heaven, the Gentiles came in, now he's hanging out, he's eating with Gentiles until... The brothers of James and the Judaizers show up. And now he's like, ooh, got to prove myself again. Got to fit in again. And Paul doesn't rub his nose in it. You notice that? Paul doesn't pull the racist card and say, Peter, why are you being a racist? Shame. He doesn't do that. Like with yesterday, we, I worked on this sermon all day, and so I ordered Pizza Hut, but I could only eat the chicken wings so I ate chicken wings, and I forgot and threw them in the trash, and my dog got the chicken wings out of the trash, and he's walking around chewing them, and I don't want to take him to the hospital. So I'm like, no, Levi, give him bad dog, right? Shame. Shame be upon you. <laughs> That's not how Paul treats Peter in this moment. What does he do? He says, man, you're not living in line with the gospel. What is the gospel Peter had experienced? The love of God through Christ given at great price to him. The grace and acceptance of Jesus in spite of his brokenness. Peter, you're loved. You're already accepted. Why are you trying to prove yourself again? It gives me great hope because it reminds me that we're not going to get it perfect this side of glory that we'll grow, that we'll grow from this, that we'll trust God more, that we'll experience more and more and more increasing freedom from shame and guilt and fear and the pain of our past. But the point isn't Peter gets perfect after this. The point is God is gracious so you're free from needing to prove yourself to God and to others and yourself. The point's not 
Be like Peter. Be bold. Be inclusive. Get over your shame. Do great things for God. No. The point is not what you do for God, but what he's done for us. The gospel is that God set his love on us. He proved it by sending his son when we turned our back on him. He sent Jesus to die in our place, and the Bible says he bore our shame. Hebrews 12, 2, despising the shame. He went to the cross despising the shame. Jesus Christ took the shame, your shame, folded up neatly in the tomb along with the grave clothes and left it there. Your shame is removed from you. You don't have to carry it one more day. You can come down today and receive the gospel, receive the good news, whether it's through a prayer team, whether it's through communion, whether it's just by hanging back and praying and singing, you can be free from your shame today. Maybe today, if you're hearing this, you'll allow God to speak softly over you. Maybe you'll allow him to take you by the hand and lead you back into those dark, painful places that you've tried to shut off and ignore. Maybe you'll allow him to speak over your life that he does love you. That you've always been loved. He'll always be loved. Maybe today you can rest in his grace enough to feel free from that constant need to prove yourself to him and others and to yourself. Maybe you can dare to answer yes when he asks you, do you love me? Maybe you can begin to step out even today from your past and follow him into the future he's set before you, your calling, your ministry, your purpose. Today, I want to encourage you guys to leave that yellow ticket identity behind and trade it for the precious silver that's yours by grace. To take some time, carve out some time, put it on the calendar to get alone with the voice of love and allow him to speak over your life. Get away from some of the other voices. Let's pray. What an amazing truth, God, that you loved us enough to send your son. And that the gospel doesn't just apply to the guilt from my sin when I say, oh, I did something bad, but that the, the gospel can actually free me from the shame of my sin, from believing the lie that I am what I've done or what's been done to me. Thank you for that precious truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would pierce the hearts of everybody here with that truth. I pray that you would shine a floodlight on our lives and help us to see some of the dark areas that we've had hidden in the shadows, maybe. Things we haven't wanted to face. I pray you would set freedom into the hearts of people in this place right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help some people to take the first step of faith in you today. Maybe somebody here is on the fence about being a Christian. I pray that you would nudge their heart. And let this not just be a practical truth, as if it's a magical formula that once I become a Christian, I, I get free from all my shame. But God, that they would know you and know that they're loved. And that that's the starting place. 
the context of love in your presence with your voice of love spoken over us. Thank you so much that the gospel applies to our shame. Thank you that it applies to our fear. Some of us might still be wrestling with fear in here. Maybe we'll get to that next week. I don't know. But I pray for those that would hold back today that maybe want to go pray or want to go get communion or want to take a step and say, I'm making a decision to follow Jesus. I pray that if there's any fear there, that Holy Spirit, you clear it out of the way. Clear the guilt, clear the shame, clear, clear the fear. And help some people just be known by you right now know how loved they are right in the middle of their mess. In Jesus' name we pray. All for your glory. Amen.